Yeah, so the thing is... Uh... Welcome once again aboard Beef Station as we rocket through the stars at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. I am Andrew. <laughs> Let's get stuck into it. <laughs> it's nice to know that after about four attempts, I managed to get the oh, intro Jesus. right, despite the fact that it's what I say every single week. Christ. I think if you ask me how to ride a bike. Oh man, I think if you asked me to write down what I say, I would never. No, I couldn't either. You, you were like, "What do I say?" I'm like, "How the fuck would I know?" <laughs> You don't know. And the one day I'm sick and you're going to have to do the podcast without me, you're going to yeah. be screwed. And the more you think about it, the harder it is to do. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, like, just like riding a bike. <laughs> um, should we start with a bit of news, boy? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Beef Bulletin. Taika Waititi, famous for directing the Thor Ragnarok film and Hunt for the Wilder People, is writing and directing a TV adaptation of 1981's Time Bandits. Did you ever see Time Bandits? No, I've heard of that. So, when after is Monty Python... No, it's not. After Monty Python split, they all went their separate ways and did different projects, but they often collaborated together. So, Terry Gilliam did a whole bunch of weird movies, and he's got a new one coming out this year. <laughs> I think um, every movie Terry Gilliam ever did was <laughs> a weird movie. So, it was a 1981 Terry Gilliam film that had a couple Python things in it. Mm. It essentially followed the traveling adventures... Okay, so, Two Snakes. What else has it got in it? <laughs> um, so, I'm just reading from the Empire article here. Um, it followed the story of a, an 11-year-old history buff named Kevin who one night um, finds Hello. six dwarves that come out of his closet and help him travel through time. Um, you just can't really make fun of it because <laughs> no. like, they're making fun um, of themselves. Yeah, the supreme... Um, they're dwarves that used to work for the supreme being. They've stolen a map that charts all the holes in the space-time fabric and they use it to hop from one historical era to the next in order to steal riches. So it has like characters like uh, Napoleon, Robin Hood's played by John Cleese. All sorts of weird shit happens. I haven't seen it since I was like eight, so I don't really remember mm. it. But there's going to be a TV adaptation and I think Taika Waititi has a really... Weird, oh, quirky that'll be tone. good. Like it'll work really that well. Super dry, sarcastic shit onto that skin. That'll be that'll be great. Yeah, yeah. so I'm really looking forward to that. I really like that guy's movies, and I'm annoyed it's that good. I haven't seen Ragnarok yet because apparently it was a really. Oh, nice don't worry, take. it's bad. <laughs> I've heard from literally everyone else that it's good, and forgive me if I don't take uh, your opinion on a Marvel movie entirely credibly. It doesn't work. <laughs> the combination doesn't work. It's, it tries to be funny and absurd, and it also tries to take itself way too seriously, <laughs> and it just doesn't work. Um, Sorry, Zach, you're wrong. <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh, they've uh, One of the deleted scenes from Vice has been released onto the internet. It oh, was a yeah. uh, now, musical... Now, deleted how? Is it going to make it onto like a DVD, or is this something that should never have been... I think it's been like officially released as a deleted oh, okay, scene. Right. It's a musical scene... In which Donald Donald Rumsfeld teaches a young Dick Cheney how to get ahead in Washington through song and dance. <laughs> that's good shit, but I also see why they cut it because that's a that's like Adam McKay plays with the format a lot. That's yeah. that's a little too far outside of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Christ, what else has been cut? Oh man, I don't know. Oh, well, there, was, there was apparently. Or I wonder if that one's like so absurd. They were like, "No, nah, we got to get <laughs> well, this out." You know about that shirtless scene with uh, yeah. Christian Bale, where he must have been like, "Come on, I got fat. I got to, I yeah. got to get shirtless and show them how real fat I am." Yeah, it's real weird how Donald Rumsfeld asked Dick Cheney, "Is that a fat suit?" <laughs> 
Um, uh, we keep getting a lot of non-news about the new Bond 25 film. So how's this one? Remy Malek set, <laughs> set to join Bond 25 as the villain in the Bond movie after his Oscars oh. win. Um, I think he's he's fucked enough looking that he could be a good Bond villain. He's fucked enough looking, but people... He's definitely been like... I, I, I reckon Bohemian Rhapsody will be doing some work against him now because he's people have cast him as the good guy. No, know? did I? I must have misspoken. Freddie Mercury is the bad guy in the new Bond. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he's wearing the teeth and everything. Played by Sasha Baron Cohen. I yeah. Hope. Um, <laughs> that would. You'd watch that, that would be good. <laughs> Can we? I think. Let's I think, make it happen. I think you just wrote the new Austin Powers movie. Fuck buddy. yeah. <laughs> oh. Nah. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. Ben Affleck says he's still open to directing a DC film after he got booted off the last one, mm. uh, and it turned out to be Ratchet. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe I mean, that one hasn't come out yet. I think there was there was supposed to be some sort of some sort of rumor that Ben Affleck was going to be doing a Batman movie, and Ben Affleck's a good director and a good writer. So I mean, the more that I learn, yeah, the more that I learn about it, the more I'm like, I reckon he probably wasn't the problem. Yeah, you know. Just all of those giant, like the bigger a movie is, the more trouble it has, the more I'm like, ah, studio fucked it. (laughs) Like, absolutely. Here's another bit of news. So, um, I don't know if you knew, but Universal wanted to start to reboot their old back catalogue of classic horror movies. Um, They did a new version of The Mummy in 2017. Uh, I think it was a Tom Cruise mummy movie that no one really saw and it kind of failed. So they thought like, oh, fuck that. But they had plans to go back and redo Frankenstein and all this other shit. Um, they've just announced that their new film they're going to do in that circle of films that I thought was going to be cancelled is The Invisible Man, the Claude Rains oh, okay. movie from That's like that, the 1930s. That, that famous one they always use as an example of early visual effects, right? Yeah. And I watched it recently. Fuck, it's really cool, man. Mm. Especially after you watch whatever video I say it is I watched that te- teaches you all about like um, <laughs> matting and movies using mats in special effects. The idea behind a mat is like, for example, you sort of have to know how film works. Obviously, it runs through the lens and exposes... (laughs) No, no, go ahead. I know how film works. (laughs) So like... Real, actual, real-to-real film. Yeah, right. So um, it runs through the lens and gets exposed (laughs) to light, and then that's done, right? Right, I do a podcast about films, I know how it works, right? (laughs) And so they realise, like, oh, we we could do some trickery here if we only expose part of the frame, move something, and then expose the other half. So they did this thing for a while where they would get like uh, a bit of glass, paint half the glass black, and hold that right up against the lens. So only half of the picture was um, framed out. So you might see so there's a scene, for example, where like Charlie Chaplin is skating around on roller skates, and he skates right up to the edge of a cliff and sort of topples and then skates and then skates back. So I don't know how well this is being conveyed on the audio medium, but the way they did that was they, they filmed Charlie Chaplin roller skating right to the edge of the middle of a room, and then... That the other half of the film was completely unexposed, and they flipped the glass plate around, and then they just filmed like a cliff, and that was how they did that. Yeah. And so then for a while, like any shot where you'd want something fancy going on, it'll be all locked off, and the camera had to be fixed. And they worked out, for example, that it wouldn't just have to be a half-half thing; they could sort of paint in the a top beautiful oil or painting background yeah. or whatever. So yeah, there yeah, could yeah. be characters walking past a huge, big European castle, and the castle would just be like an oil painting about 10 centimetres away from the actual lens. And as long as you black out the right part of the negative, yeah. then it works. You, sort of film, yeah. you have to sort of film everything twice, but it works. And yeah. so by the time they got to the Claude Rames Visible Man movie in the 30s, which is why I'm mentioning this, they'd worked out how to do oh, that. Yeah. yeah. They'd worked out how to do that with shit that's moving. And so it was yeah. like early, early, early green screen, but it doesn't really work the same way green screen does at all, where in The Invisible Man, he wore like a black velvet suit. 
and it works through the way that negatives work where like I think black stuff shows up as completely white so it completely exposes that so then you get like um, yeah. I think so the I negative think is naturally white <laughs> and the chemicals don't change to black however it works I think is how it works the negative turns out to be this white shape that's moving around the screen I think and then you can just keep processing and processing that one bit of film and so you have a copy of the film and then you have a copy of the film where it's just this white shape moving around on a black background and then you can shoot the whole thing again and you've basically deleted the dude from the frame and I'm not really explaining yeah, it probably because yeah, it's yeah. fucking complicated it yeah. took them decades to work out but The Invisible Man is one of the first if you're really looking up- interesting examples I'll, I'll, I've got a, a link that's like a whole bunch of cool how silent movie uh, effects were made. I'll try and yeah, find it that. In I'll put it in the description. Yeah. It's really cool. They're little, like, little 10 second gifs about like, watch this. This is how they and, did it. And it's funny because if you watch that gif, you've like... You immediately get what I just spent the last four minutes yeah. trying to describe. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're going to feel like, I don't, I don't want to surprise you listeners, but once again, I've wasted your time. Uh, the news headline is that Elizabeth Moss is in talks to be in that movie. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so Who cares? Yes, we are still <laughs> in Beef Bullet. Yeah, this is like fucking... And we're actually still driving a van off a cliff <laughs> this whole time. Metaphorically speaking, of course. No, um, I'm... <laughs> You're going to have a rude shock when you wake up, mate. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's, oh, we're going to get sued by Chris, Christopher Nolan now, are we? Um, uh, Your podcast stole my <laughs> film idea. <laughs> um, uh, Captain Marvel's just come out, and it's made over $455 million globally in one weekend. Um, which means that now, in total, the Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise has made $18 billion. I would really rather that you didn't tell me <laughs> stuff like that. So, if you're wondering what when I was in the next room and you heard me go, Whoa! <laughs> that was me reading that on my phone. What's the <laughs> estimate for the cost of solving homelessness in the country where these movies are made? Let me just look this up. Hold on. Oh, Eight, huh. Eighteen billion dollars, much less yeah. than eighteen billion dollars. <laughs> Funny that, yeah, um, yeah. So, I guess gross. What we're saying is, get it, because it's also the uh, the amount that the films have grossed. Uh, yeah. I guess what we're saying is that Brie Larson is directly responsible for there being poverty in the world. Yeah, take that, Brie. How do you sleep at night, you monster? Mm. Um, there's going to be a new Doom movie coming out in fall of 2019 starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. My brain went, that is a portmanteau. And then I went, do me. Do me. And I went, <laughs> like, oh, that's why, that's why they And then you that. said something about Dwayne Johnson and I was like, fuck, I better start paying attention again. Dwayne The Rock Johnson's going to be in a new Doom movie that's coming out in Was he in the original Doom movie? I don't know, but the one that one came out in 2005 and it was famously not very good. Oh, no, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I didn't read the article properly. This just let's in. Just, it was excellent. Let's, let's, let's go back. <laughs> let's go back. <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson was in the 2005 one that was terrible We don't know anything about who's in the new one. Oh, so <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson at this point Not in the new Doom movie No, we got to retcon the news <laughs> Fucking oh. hell What are we, J.K. Um, Rowling? That five hour long documentary All about um, allegations against Michael Jackson About him being responsible for all sorts of child sexual assault stuff came out last week and it's been absolutely huge worldwide um his album sales and streaming and everything has seen global declines worldwide declines okay yep um the simpsons has removed the michael jackson episode from their rotation of 
episodes in the back catalogue, so that's never going to screen again right. on US TV. Um, New Zealand and Canada radio stations have said they're not going to play music anymore. Um, longtime Michael Jackson defender Corey Feldman has changed his mind and said that after he's seen it, he doesn't feel comfortable defending Michael Jackson anymore. Mm. Um, all sorts, all sorts of huge stuff has happened. Um, and there are some, we, we, I guess the documentary we is won't worth go watching. into it, but like there yeah. are some. Very serious allegations, yeah. very serious accounts. They seem pretty credible. It's pretty intense. If you want to watch it, it's available in Australia for free to stream on the Channel 10, 10 Play website Yeah, in full. Um, I started watching it and <laughs> it's five hours long, so I haven't finished it yet, but it's really interesting and mm. it's really... It really sort of captures the way in which the victims talk about their fascination of this guy with this guy and how that sort of develops into the more sinister kind of story that everyone's probably. I think more it would be like, of. yeah, for, for for kids that were involved in that sort of stuff, like the money and the power that he would have had, like Yeah, absolutely. It would have been like you get to go to Disneyland but someone fiddles you. It's <laughs> like Put a kid in that position. That's you know that affects you for the rest of your life. Especially you know, it's if you're terrible. Especially if you're tan and you don't really understand necessarily. That's what's what going. I mean. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely you, fine. Yeah, it's it's awful. Uh, um, the, the documentary there is really interesting. Well, man, and it's worth worth watching because okay. I've started it and I've enjoyed what I've seen so far. Here's an interesting um, question. Yeah. Just thinking back on our Oscars coverage. Yeah, sure. Do you think that a five hour? So is it a, is it technically one part or is it a mini series or what is it's that a, is it going to be eligible for best documentary i made up five hours it's like a real long it's two parts and i think each part goes for like two hours that's still pretty fucking it's a, long. T- it's a tv it was made for hbo so i think it was a tv thing so they oh, would have okay. showed like Probably one time one, yeah no i don't think so no damn um but not, why that was made. <laughs> not if steven spielberg has anything to say oh about good segue yeah, <laughs> um, any ne- news on the fucking um, no, I closed Ghost it. Ghost of N- Movies Past. <laughs> Netflix has responded to Stephen Spielberg's thing. You a bitch, Stephen. <laughs> Say, hey, Stephen, how about you make a good movie that's not about some kid trapped in VR and then, then come talk to him? Yeah, make a movie that's good that doesn't have a fucking puppet in it, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I got one story to as a penultimate news story this week. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is from news.com, so it's fake. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Fucking got you, Murdoch. More like irony.com. Queen music video director. Bohemian Rhapsody sequel being discussed. (laughs) I saw that. Now, a bunch of other other articles riffed off this one, say. Doesn't he die at the end of the first one? No. It's the Live Aid concert, if you'll recall. (laughs) Yeah, the Live Aid concert where Freddie Mercury is famously shot. Not much live room. Not much room to maneuver between <laughs> really? the Live Aid concert and when I know, <laughs> I know we ended with their great moment of triumph. What happened after let's that? Let's make another one. Well, let's make the what one happened. Where, let's make the one where Freddie Mercury just dies slowly of AIDS. Right, and then there, there were there were all these fucking stories starting basically I think from that guy's one like from that guy's <laughs> one comment that were like. They're doing a Bohemian Rhapsody sequel. They're doing a sequel. They're doing a sequel. When's it going to start? Is it going to start with Live Aid concert? The music and then, video director. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, via Slash Films, <laughs> a, a, a quote, a Bohemian Rhapsody sequel is not in the works. Yeah, no, obviously so, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is good shit to experience over the course of one day. <laughs> Where you're like, oh, fuck, really? And then they're like, no, not really. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh thank good. God. Okay. <laughs> Bet it happens anyway. <laughs> I bet um, you it happens anyway. Oh yeah, no, maybe, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Like the fact that we don't know is just inherently distressing to me. Yeah, <laughs> and also that yeah, it's completely believable that they would do another one. 
If it was oh, a 100%. gritty, grimdark reboot, or not reboot, but like continuation of where he, you know, like his slow character decline, it could almost be interesting, but like just do it about someone else, you fucking dicks. Yeah, it's weird. Um, well, you got uh, one last story the one, for us, The boy. one last story I have is that the first ever English language Hello Kitty movie is in development. Get hyped. So it's, there have been other Hello Kitty movies. It's the first movie deal outside Japan in Hello Kitty's 45-year history as a brand. 45 years? Hello Kitty's been around since 1974. Shit, when really? Hello, Ki- Hello Kitty began as a coin purse. So I wonder if this is the first <laughs> the, the, the first coin purse that's been adapted into a movie since... Uh, <laughs> can, you think of, can you think of one? Other than testicles, no. Testicles got adapted to a movie? Oh, boy, have I got several thousand websites for you. Oh, those <laughs> kinds of movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fucking hell, 45 years old. Yeah, it's on. It's, uh, Hello Kitty is now in 130 countries like, on 50,000 differently plan, branded products. One of us will make it to see Hello Kitty's 50th anniversary. Oh, he's hoping. <laughs> he's hoping I'd go out in a... Ball of fire at forty nine years no. of Hello Kitty, just like he I planned. is hoping. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy. Okay, wild, cool. and also the fact that they didn't like. Uh, but I, so I, in the back of my head, I'm getting a vague memory from somewhere that like Hello Kitty intentionally didn't franchise out and sort of stuck to its guns and was very like puritan about just being like a cute little Japanese I mean, <laughs> thing. I, I think you missed me saying before that they're in 130 countries and Hello Kitty is on 50,000 different branded products. So I don't think so. Okay, so it's like it's an empire. <laughs> Hello Kitty's a real real whore of a kitty. It's an empire, but it, it was never, like they never, as, as you say, like this is the first English speaking one. I don't think Hello Kitty has an English voice actor. Like <laughs> it's not, were, I, I feel like I, I don't just know remember them saying like we're never changing the character or anything like that. Like it's just. <laughs> not to dox more of our high school teachers, but I seem to remember that my year eight English teacher was a huge Hello Kitty fan. So. Uh, I believe she was. Yeah. If you're, if you're out there, miss. Uh, <laughs> miss. Here's one for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all I got for Beef Bulletin this week, boy. So, If Beale Street Could Talk is the film that we watched this week. Directed by Barry Jenkins. Long-awaited follow-up to Moonlight, that won an Academy Award a couple of years ago. Uh, written and directed by Barry Jenkins. He apparently wrote both this and Moonlight within, like, one six-week window of time. All in right, this, man. like, screenwriting fever dream. We've all done amphetamines, okay? <laughs> uh, stars Kiki Lane... And Stephen James as the main couple in what is really like a romantic drama kind of film that and has I, a bit of a, a bit of a crime kind of twist to it. Kiki Lane plays Tish Rivers, um, and Stephen James plays uh, Fonny Hunt, who is her boyfriend. Uh, Alfonso, Alfonso, yeah, yeah. come like longtime family friend that sort of developed into a romance. It's set in the 1970s in New York. They live in Harlem. And it's kind of a film all about kind of the culture surrounding the Harlem slum at that time. And the film really romanticizes that area. It doesn't really feel like a slum or like a poor area of town in the way in which the film depicts it. It really does feel like this beautiful, romantic wonderland in the eyes of Tish and Fonny. Um, the film has this weird non-linear kind of structure where it flicks between their developing romance as friends and moving in together and... In the past. In the past. And then the sort of present time in the film, which is all in the sort of 
a few months of the same kind of period in the early 70s. And there's sort of two main settings there. Yeah, where Fonny is then sent to jail for a horrendous crime that he didn't commit. Yeah, and, um, well, yeah. You know he didn't. I, I, I guess it is pretty much definitive that he didn't do it. I was just wondering if there was any ambiguity about it. It's never definitively said, but there is one key piece of evidence given early on in the film that means that he basically couldn't possibly have. He has. I think the film. It. The film's not trying to give any mystery. He's. He's. He's put That's in prison. Not the point of it, yeah. We can say what it is, right? He's. He's put in prison. He's accused of rape on a rape charge, yeah. and the film very clearly says, like, no, here's his alibi, and there's this whole scene around like why and he like why he was in it. He, he was in a specific place and couldn't have travelled to the place where. The incident yeah. happened in the amount of time he was given. Yeah. So that's a bit of so in a, in, a, in yeah. almost a Black Klansman kind of way, but like a, in a lot more subtle kind of fashion. The film also has like a uh, a kind of running commentary on justice and the justice system's bias against black people uh, in yeah, America. Yeah, very very strong. Yeah. yeah, it sort of gets stronger as the film goes on, but it's it's not like it's, it doesn't necessarily end in the way Black Klansman does. We're like, oh, okay. I mean, the film the whole film's not about law enforcement either. It's really like a romantic film where the sort of Spanner in the works of this beautiful love story becomes this sort of crime drama that comes out of nowhere, much in the same way as I imagine these sorts of things might come out of nowhere for black Americans. And the other sphere, I guess, that's involved in this, the present time, um, is the the family sphere where they need to have some important discussions about the impact that Fonny being absent will have on a family. Right, because so. Tish is, of course, pregnant yeah. with Fonny's child. And that's where the film kind of starts off, is with flashbacks in the past and then back to the present where Tish is pregnant, her boyfriend is in prison. They're both sort of 19, 20... I think she's 19, he's 22. Yeah. So that's kind of a broad strokes of what the film's kind of about and where it's at. What do you think of it, first of all? Um, look, I've got mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Um I uh the first if if we had walked out at the first half of this film I would have said it was terrible. Oh um, man. I would have said that the uh, that that it was horribly cliched uh and that it didn't really innovate in any way and that it was um at its worst seeking approval of people that I guess so like it felt to me like the first or, or or my impression after the first half of this film was that this was awful Oscar bait. Oh, I and disagree. It was just trying to kind of elicit in in a, in a pejorative sense like sympathy from people. It was trying to to have that kind of like um very over like look at the trials and tribulations of these people. It was doing a lot of like it wasn't doing direct exposition, but just the way that the it was very cliched in the way that it that it kind of delivered. That having been said, I think the the the, the way that the second half of the film went, yeah. um, almost entirely redeemed it for me. I don't necessarily feel different about the first part, and I think that if people were lost as viewers in this, like if 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 it alienated people in that first part of the film, I think I I could very much understand. I don't know what really happened, but it felt like the tone of the movie changed so strongly. Not not the tone, but the the way that the interactions between characters was assembled changed halfway through, and it stopped being kind of 
so hammy and, and saccharine. Well, yeah, no, well, for, for a start, I kind of disagree, because personally, the first 45 minutes of the film was my favourite bit of the whole film. Wow. I really, I thought it was one of the most beautiful, warm things I've seen in a film in a long time. I really liked the way the score all came together. We mentioned a few weeks ago that... Um, I listened to a critic who was talking about how the score seems like it really couldn't exist outside of this film. Like, it really seems like a, a composer watched the film several times before putting his score together, really thinking about every single piece of music. Um, and it really complements every scene throughout that first sort of hour of the film specifically. There's a lot of um, beautifully warm, bright, vibrant colours that I noticed were sort of in almost direct contrast to moonlight that had a lot of cold blues and that kind of that kind of kind of thing um and so i think it's really interesting the way they were playing with color color grading and cinematography yeah. in a bit of a different way um i thought that the characters are really believable and i thought that it was a really it was kind of a really beautiful romantic look at a area of new york and a period of time that i think doesn't doesn't normally get that kind of beautiful treatment and I also noticed the fact that the film kind of takes this bit of a turn, sort of about 45 minutes in, there's a meeting in a lawyer's office where it sort of starts to become the crime element of the film starts to sort of rise more to the forefront. And I think that's where it starts to get a bit more interesting in terms of it being a bit more non-linear, where it cuts between them trying to make F- that Tish and her family trying to get Fonny out of prison and then cutting back to the romance story in the past and then coming back to this crime legal kind of drama and then back to the romance story. And I think that's definitely where it starts to heat up. By no means do I think that the first half of the film was sort of inferior. I thought it was great. I I thought that it might have played on a lot of romantic kind of tropes that you see in other films, but I think that it was original enough in its cinematography and even like the costuming and the sets and everything. There was a lot of beautiful sets like in his workshop, Fonny's like an artist and he makes wooden sculptures where it almost kind of looks like a diorama, the way the camera's kind of fixed in one spot and Fonny's moving around the place making his sculptures. There's a lot of shots I noticed where like, for example, in a diner, Tish and Fonny are having 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 lunch or dinner or whatever meal it is and the camera takes the perspective of the waiter moving around the restaurant and there's lots of little first person shots like that that seem to sort of want to get you invested into their story and invested into their relationship which I think complement and enhance the story later mm. I have feedback on everything you've just said oh it's a good, it's a good thing we're recording this <laughs> conversation then um I actually do want to break it down a tiny little bit like element by element um and I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time getting into every element, um, but it, uh, we had really interestingly different opinions on each each one of these things. So, like I'm the first, to find out why I'm wrong. The first, no, <laughs> I, I definitely don't think so. And like, obviously, this film was like just as a as a panorama. This film, no, as an umbrella for what I'm about to say, like this film was was. W- widely and almost universally praised. Yeah, um, I thought it was and beautiful. So I, I think if I am, like that, that's a pretty strong sign to me that like whatever I'm disagreeing with must be a note of personal preference rather than um, the movie being flawed in some way. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was at least for the first forty-five minutes of the film, at completely unconvinced by the dialogue uh, because it felt. 
uh, it, it entirely, you know that thing that we've described before that we hate where like characters are allowed to finish their lines in their entirety before any other character responds? That happened for like the first 45 minutes of the film. Yeah, I, the, think, I think you're trying to incept me by talking about Yorgos Lanthimos and feeling, <laughs> feeling some sort of rage inside of me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. But <laughs> You're going to upset like, Oscar, you know how you think this and this and this and this? Bill Street's terrible. <laughs> no, like, it's, oh no! It's, it has an extremely different. It leaves you with an extremely different sensation to the sensation that that normally leaves you with. Yeah. But I still noticed it, and it still, for me, completely broke me out of the film. I didn't feel that the conversations were natural. I didn't feel any kind of realistic human interaction in the film until like halfway through, and then it it felt. Great. Yeah. After that. I suppose I didn't really notice that, but if I had to sort of really try and think back on it, I think that perhaps when I said the, the characters are believable, I sort of like, within the the world that the film itself creates, because the film itself does feel a bit sort of larger than life, and the whole film, not just in its colour choice, feels very sort of vibrant. It's very surreal very light. Like points. A lot of the times, yeah, like the, the score changes from being... You can't tell when the score is diegetic and non-diegetic. Like, there are whole scenes, for example... This is only sort of tangentially related to what you were saying. It's Um, actually the next point I was going to make, but yeah, go for it. There are whole scenes where, like, for example, there's this dinner scene with Daniel and Tish and Fonny... So Daniel is Daniel's like a, a childhood friend, friend of Fonny's. Yeah. Um, there's this whole scene where there's this jazz... The whole score is like a mixture of classical music and jazz music and all these orchestral swells Before and you, b- Sorry. Yep. Before you get onto the score part of that, interestingly enough, that conversation was the first point in my notes where I, I said, this is great. This, that was my favourite scene of the whole film. Yeah. I, I, I've got one other that beat it, but that conversation mm. was fucking fantastic and I didn't get the same sensation that I got yeah. from all of the dialogue earlier in the film. Yeah. So, uh, well, most of it, at least. So, I think that the fact that you're mentioning that for the score, yeah. but that for me, that was the moment where the dialogue clicked. Okay. It's a really interesting point of difference. I suppose I didn't really notice the dialogue, but what I'm getting at with this score thing... If you didn't notice it, you weren't noticing the same thing yeah, right. that I was noticing, oh, well, so that's fine. <laughs> so this score thing specifically, the whole score is kind of this mixture of jazz and classical, and it's just really interesting. You don't quite know what genre it is, if you know it, what I mean. It, it isn't. It's like, it's, there's a lot of jazz stuff that you don't normally yeah. hear in John Williams-y kind of stuff. It's but then like it kind jazz of, with strings and, but yeah. The, yeah, but the way the music plays in that scene, it's kind of in the background. Like, it sounds like it's being played downstairs. Like, it sounds like they're above a club or something. Or it's being played loudly in the next room. It's kind of muffled. And I thought that that was a really interesting way of bringing the audience into the world of the film and making the score part of the world of the film in a very sort of in a way that you couldn't even tell where the score stops and the world of the film begins like right. I don't even know whether the characters in the film could hear that score as it was playing because it yeah. sounded like it was muffled happening downstairs and that kind of builds to the whole general impression you get of this film is put a being this not surreal but a sort of Deep, uh, I would say surreal okay a deeply immersive kind of surreal world in which a lot of the dialogue, if to you it felt forced or whatever, I think for me, it just really helped to reinforce this strange, lovely, beautiful world that he was painting for me. Right. In which it was deliberately romanticizing and deliberately making larger and happier than life an area of New York and a period of time that for all accounts must have been kind of shitty and terrible. 
And so I think that this this sort of beautiful oil painting kind of depiction of their relationship where the dialogue is perfect and they have these perfect sunny days and the first outfit you see is like uh, Fonny with like a yellow shirt and a blue jacket and Tish with like a perfectly matching outfit with like a blue shirt, a blue dress and a yellow jacket. And so their outfits perfectly coordinate and the sun is perfect and the music is perfect. I think it's deliberately trying to be noticeable and deliberately trying to sort of paint this perfect depiction of this relationship that's almost kind of unbelievable how amazing it is. Yeah. And to sort I, of really I, show you like how they feel, if that makes sense. I, I made a note of the opening line of the film because I yeah. felt... So visually, I thought that first scene was very reminiscent of like... <laughs> kind of like the antithesis, as you said earlier, the antithesis of Moonlight. So Moonlight was very brooding, a dark purple, yeah. blues, cold colours. This was Moonlight if Moonlight was joy yeah. and it was it's, it's so bright so vibrant um so so highly lit um the the and and i was sort of going into it being like okay what's the what's the what's the tone of this movie i was yeah. trying to figure out what it was saying to me and the first line in the film was and i might be getting this slightly wrong but it was something like she says to him are you ready for this and he says i was born ready okay <laughs> And I was like, that is fucking shit. <laughs> That's one of the worst lines of dialogue I've ever I didn't ever I, heard in I my didn't entire notice. life. I think I was so and swept away by the whole tone of the film. <laughs> right. And I think it does its so, job. And for me, it, it just it was like, man, you could have said that is one of maybe the most important line in the entire film and that was yeah. fucking bad. Yeah. That was and I for the record, I liked this film. I maintain that was an abysmal opening line it's sure. referenced later and it's reused but like still horrible but um i agree with the like that that idea of it being like this kind of surreal paradise um yeah kind of visual visualization and and i also agree that about you know two-thirds or sorry about a third of the way through whenever it sort of makes this left turn and goes okay now this film is about the consequences of incarceration especially mm. when that incarceration is on false premises, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, with the score, so I-, I made a note around the time when I was writing the pits of like, this movie's kind of pissing me off and I'm not really sure why it's been as highly praised yeah. as it has been. Where... Um, <laughs> so like an hour in. <laughs> probably about 45 minutes. Yeah. Like, yeah. And... Uh, or Or... It was during a, I think, a sex scene. Hell yeah! Um, and it, uh, a really intimate scene between Tish and Fonny, where they're kind of—is that um, like their sort of first time? Where they yeah, it, it's off representing the, this sort of really gorgeous, transcendent moment where you you move between loving someone as a friend into as an adult loving them as a as a partner. Yeah, and. You know, it's really that's a that's a challenging moment to reflect on as a filmmaker, um, and a really challenging moment to try and capture. And as I was watching it, I was I was looking for all sorts of things like, what's the shot length here? What are they doing with the score? Like, how are they building tension? And that had a lot of the the actors weren't talking to each other a lot it was a lot of just like non-verbal communication and th- and that was represented quite well but one thing that was really annoying the shit out of me was that <laughs> by, by this point in the film i felt like i hadn't not heard music for 45 minutes that i just wanted a bit of There's a lot of music i wanted a film. bit of quiet and okay. 
I, I felt like I, I made this note of like the score is too, I said too constant and overbearing. And then I realized, <clears throat> I realized that the title card of this film is a note about Beale Street. And it's Beale, all about music. Beale Street is a, a street in downtown Memphis in Tennessee. And it is a, a significant location uh, in terms of the history of blues music, which is historically inextricably linked to the J- journey jazz, of really, black America yeah. in the country. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm reading from Wikipedia, <laughs> but yeah. I just kind of asked myself, I was like, okay, is this the, is that the point? Because it made, it made a comment about how um, when you're walking down Beale Street, you're, you're kind of affronted with, with, with such a, a mix of sounds that it can be overwhelming. And some people think, um, some people can't handle it. Yeah. But each, individual song is capable of standing out amongst the rest. I've got right? the qu- I've got half of the quote here. It, it says, Beale Street is a street in New Orleans where my father, Louis Armstrong, and jazz were born. Every black person in America was born on Beale Street. Beale Street is our legacy. This novel deals with the impossibility and impossibility, the absolute necessity to give expression to this legacy. Um, so obviously that's a quote from the actual the book. From the but, novel um, this is based on, yeah. So it sort of seems to be reflecting, and I don't know necessarily how this specifically relates with the old gripe of the music being too present and loud, but it sort of seems to me like it's saying this whole film is kind of a love letter to and a depiction of these back alley streets where the foundations of American culture were born. Black Americans have always been living in slums and living very poorly. And so you can't, it's very difficult to romanticize these sort of slum kind of areas that aren't typically associated with areas that are lovely or romantic, but they're fundamentally important and crucial to American culture because like jazz and blues music are such a huge part of their society. Mm. And that's such a huge part of black American society. And so um, that quote to me sort of talks about the, the importance of valuing these places despite the fact that in cultural mainstream, they aren't necessarily viewed as being very glamorous. Like Harlem, for example, is in a very glamorous kind of place, um, stereotypically. And so that's kind of what I get out about this. The whole thesis of the film is looking at these places that people sort of look down on and depicting it in this lovely, beautiful, larger-than-life kind of way that is the way that the people who for whom the culture is so important, that's the way they see it. Right. And so in the same way as like Beale Street is so important to jazz music and is so important to black American culture in that kind of area, he says, right, well, this is kind of how ha- this is how I see Harlem in the same kind of light. And I read some other article that was talking about how interesting the quote is because it's like, well, Louis Armstrong wasn't born there. Beale Street's not in New Orleans, it's in Memphis. And, yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff where like, it's all a big part of this fictionalized mishmash that is this film and the history of music and the history of culture that goes back that far and how you can't really quite pin it down to anything specifically. Um, so yeah. after I wrote that down and I and I remembered and I, kind of making that note triggered my memory of the, the opening of the film, I sort of thought, okay, they've made a note about how overbearing it can be and how, like, constant and cacophonic it is. That, that's that's the I, bit of the quote that I couldn't find, but yeah. Yeah, there's, some, uh, there's a note that basically says that. And um, and I sort of thought, okay, I might need to reconsider how I'm treating that as an aspect of this film because it's clearly, that's enough evidence for me to say, okay, this is now an intentional choice and I should start 
looking at it as if like asking what they're trying to do with that. And so what I started to feel was that that music and music in general, as it was used in the film, kind of represented the the inescapable backdrop of black culture in America, yeah. Where no matter where you are, no matter where no matter where you are, or what you're doing, or at what point in your life you're at, or what you're dealing with at that point in time, there's always going to be something there. There's always going to be that music there. There's always going to be that that feeling or that sensation or that context there. And sometimes you're going to be able to choose what that is, but often you're not. And regardless, it's going to be there in the backdrop. And it's up to you to learn to deal with that and to learn to appreciate the moments that it creates yeah. or deal with the moments that it puts upon you. Much in the same way as these areas and these cultures and these societies. Exactly in the same way, right. And so, that made me... So, I I was thinking about that as this this, um, scene of of kind of intimacy and that that first great moment of love is is represented on the screen. And what actually happens is, so, uh, for the first third of that... There's non-diegetic classical music that's a hangover from, I think, the previous scene, or it's just there. It's just a score. So for the first third, it's it's that classical music, and then it's raining outside, and you can kind of hear the raindrops hitting the roof, and the classical music fades out, and this was the thing that made me make that note, was that I heard the rain, and I was like, fuck, I wish that rain would just carry on forever. Like, th- that that rain is so so soothing and so beautiful and perfect and um it's also something that occurs completely naturally it's not manufactured in the same way that the classical music is and the non-diegetic music right and then he puts on this record which i think serves the purpose in the narrative of like maybe relaxing a tish a little bit yeah they're hanging out chilling out puts on the record Yeah, yeah and he puts on a jazz record and it's over the top of the sound of rain, and so now you've got both this sound of rain and this jazz record, and then um, this the actual, I guess, moment of like them coming together. And it it was like I, I was initially frustrated. I was like, oh fuck, music again! Like, yeah, can we just have the rain? <laughs> you know. But then I sort of thought, okay, now this is them choosing to have that music on, right? So yeah. now it's it's diegetic. It's right there in the scene with them. They've made an active decision to to create this moment. Yeah. You know, in the same way that they're doing that. And it's also um it, it, there's an interesting disparity there between like the rain being this external natural cause and that music that they're playing being this um artificial but chosen course of 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 impact and, and moment. So yeah. I, I, I kind of, after I realized that like the film had addressed this to me at the start of it and that I hadn't realized what the actual intentions yeah. were, I looked at it a little bit differently. And then whenever the score was in the background, I sort of thought, okay, so they're just choosing to have this moment or their this moment is, is, is present and they're within it or whatever. So yeah. I think based on that, I almost want to go back and watch it again to see what, I really just what the score is doing. Because I feel like for the first part of the movie, I was like, fucking hell. Yeah. Back off. But that's part of it. You've made me think in that specific moment, you could almost view that as 
the one sort of because they feel like they've been forced into this situation where no one will give them a place to live and they're forced to live in this crappy little apartment in this crappy neighborhood and they can't get work and he's got all these problems and so you can almost view that as the one empowering moment he has where he sort of he can create for himself this moment of yeah. beauty he's choosing the music this in time in an otherwise powerless situation Absolutely. and that kind of brings everything back to the the strong role that music has in everyone's lives yeah i think it's i think it's really cool and i I really enjoyed all the ways in which music played a part throughout the whole film yeah after i kind of realized that maybe i was the problem with that (laughs) i i I started to think like oh 40 episodes we've done it (laughs) (laughs) only this movie you're not getting any more of that shit out of me um Uh, no so uh, yeah and, and i guess that was probably that also probably represented a bit of a turning point for me yeah, in the rest of the film, because after that um, is the scene in which Fonny meets and greets Daniel, the friend that you said was yeah. it Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Um, meets uh, Daniel on the street. <laughs> Where Tish they, is like, and then Fonny met his fat friend Daniel, <laughs> <laughs> dragged him out of the swamp water. <laughs> yeah, um, and and that that conversation actually the way that um, that Barry Jenkins has chosen. Uh, I should learn the the name of the cinematographer because they probably had a fair bit to do with this, but. Um, the way that conversation in this movie is filmed is fucking interesting if you're watching for it. So, like, a lot of conversations... We've talked about the 180-degree rule. And it's, like, in direct before. contrast to the way in which they edit together the conversations in a film like Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. Where, uh, I mean, that's an... A, a, an, an example of it being done poorly. An excessively bad one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but normally, the way that a conversation will play out in films is, in general, you'll be cutting back and forth between two characters, right? But if you watch... Let's say specifically the conversation that occurs between Danny and Fonny. Yeah. Um, they so that conversation starts off very lighthearted when they're just mates, catching up after a while. They're drinking and smoking and having a good time, and then we find out that Danny got out of prison recently, and he begins to start to be vulnerable and kind of exposed to Fonny the depths of the negative feelings that he had while he was in there and, and the, the, the depths of the experiences that he had and the tone of the conversation changes and maybe and even the did you the notice how the score changes, changes completely? The I'm score sure gets would. more and more artificial and intense and strange and stressful right. and there's a moment where his, his account of his time in prison gets cut off and the music in a split second changes back changes, to jazz yeah. and that's the scene where the jazz is kind of sounds like it's happening downstairs. Right. Okay. So it, it, the, the, the feeling of the scene gets more and more stressful and artificial. I'm sure I felt that but I didn't notice it. Well, I noticed it immediately because so. I was listening for like whether the jazz was in the room or not Right. and okay. it stopped and then came back immediately when I think yeah. Tish interrupts it's like what y'all want for dinner or whatever like, it's fucking cool too that we were both looking for at different points in this film is the sound yeah. uh, diegetic or non-diegetic like uh, is it in the room with them or is it below or is it off is it the score like that's yeah. that's a cool thing and I th- yeah uh, I don't wh- what I was going to say about about the it. movie is or sorry what I was going to say about this the conversation is that um, often Jenkins and I, I would love to watch Moonlight to see if he does this a lot in it as well. I feel like he probably does. He will have a steady cam slowly rove between the two conversational partners yeah. in, in one cut. He won't cut between the two. He will have one character sort of m- not monologuing, but 
speaking for an extended period of time and the camera will focus on them and then it will slowly start to drift before they're done talking and it'll it, drift over to the reaction of the conversational partner. Yeah. It will capture their reaction and they'll start to talk and then it'll sort of drift between and sort the of two. lazily, sort of almost like rubber, ba- or slowly right. rubber bands between the two characters. Yeah, and it feels incredibly natural because you, you're, you know... It's almost what someone would do if they were sitting exactly. there. Exactly. You would, it goes yeah, back you to would the be first focused on shots. someone for a while and then yeah. you drift over to the other person and you drift back. Yeah. It is that first person shot and it's an incredibly good way to immerse you in the conversation that those two people are yeah. having. He does it. It's not all the time because I did notice parts where it cut back and forth. And also, might I add, I suspect that that happened a lot more in the latter parts of the film that I enjoyed than in the former parts because I feel like that lends itself more to the non-cliched style of dialogue <laughs> that I was yeah. talking about or at least what I felt was non-cliched. Yeah. Um, but when it happened, it was fucking amazing and I really, really thought those conversations were... You know, that that was really when I felt he was getting back to what I loved about Moonlight where it was capturing those human moments. Those are also like... Uh, it, it can't be understated how fucking difficult that must be as an actor to have to have an entire conversation in one cut yeah. where every reaction has to be perfect. Because if you think about it, if you fuck up a reaction in the middle of that conversation, you, do you have again, to do it yeah. again. Yeah. The whole fucking thing. Yeah. If you get one eyebrow in a way that where you where you where you naturally, if you were acting that would be like, let me just sorry, just let yeah. me have a go, uh, have another go at that. You can't. So like they've done incredibly well to be able to act through that too. Absolutely. Um, that scene fades directly into another thing I thought was fantastic in this film, which is the way in which the non the non-linear <laughs> editing of the movie directly served the character progression. So that scene very specifically um, ends with this song that slowly warps and fades into like an echo. Mm. And then the echo turns into the rushing of a train and then it snaps back I into really the present day and Tish is standing on a subway platform and she's all alone and she's heavily pregnant and her boyfriend's in prison and she's and so and then the train comes up and pulls up. Yeah. And then so it feels like that whole beautiful scene, which I think was my personal favorite scene in the whole film. Definitely the up there with the it's, best moments. It's like so beautiful and wonderful, is immediately like it was her memory, and she's being yeah. haunted by her past, and she's replaying these memories over and over again in her head about like what could I have done differently? What what happened on that night? Because that's the night of his alibi. And it's implied that she was listening to the whole conversation as well. So she wasn't participating in it, but the the that that memory for her was was something that she still captured because yeah. she was in the kitchen listening to the to the two of them talk. Yeah. yeah. And so then the second half of that film, when it goes a lot more between Tish being alone in the present day pregnant and trying to like deal with a help pregnant situation and then flashing back to like romantic situations with her and Fonny, um, it just feels like memories the whole time. And so the more the film goes on, it, they almost feel kind of bittersweet because at the start, it's so heavily sort of gets the audience invested into how lovely this relationship is and how perfect it is, almost how impossibly perfect this relationship is for her because it's like a young love. It's the way you sort of see your first relationship yeah. kind of thing. Um, that when it keeps splashing back from the shitty situation to that lovely situation, obviously it kind of feels kind of, kind of a jarring kind of cut and it feels, and it sort of changes the whole tone of the flashbacks as it goes. Yeah, and you see some stuff more than once. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you kind of relive it. Uh, yeah. I, uh, it's, I, I really didn't like the first half of this movie and I really didn't like it for reasons that totally evaporated in the second half. I think and it, it feels like everything you're bringing up... No, because I, 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 I was... 
kind of cross-examining myself, but I just felt like <laughs> it felt almost like the crew of this film completely changed the second half of it. Because yeah. I hated well, I, the way that it cut back and forth in the first half of the film, right? Yeah. During it, during almost every flashback when they're... So, as we talked about, when they're having that family gathering at the uh, in the present at the first half of the film, that family gathering cuts back two moments before Fonny was arrested in the yeah. second or in the in the past. I felt like it was artificially building tension yeah. because each cut back to the past was unrelated to what they were talking about. And so what happened was you had the the continuity and the flow of that tense family gathering was destroyed broken. and I, you had the the continuity and the flow of establishing their early relationship moments completely yeah. destroyed but the second half of the film it did it so elegantly with moments like that transition with the tram and it being directly related yeah. to what they're talking about and and being able to draw a direct thematic link between what was happening in the past and or sorry, what's happening in the present and e- each next cut back to the past or what he talks about in the past and how it cuts directly back to the present. I felt like that was totally absent in the first part of the film and I, I was just really like, I don't. it confused me how much I didn't like it at first and then in the second half thought, what was he doing? Like yeah. now, it's, now I get it. That family gathering, and I'll go back to it in a second, contains, I, I think that family gathering was my least favourite scene in the whole film. I think it was and the it was, weakest part. It was annoying. There, yeah. were, there was this very specific part about that that I'm sure you'll be able to guess. We'll go back to it. It was really annoying throughout that whole scene. Not all of it? Um, well, the three characters, so I'll, I'll do it now. Fonny's mum and two sisters were the most annoying, cartoon, caricaturish, Poor caricature. Irritating characters. Like, the, the actor... They were the hyper-Christian... Hyper conservative values, basically like God will rain His vengeance upon me. Yeah. And that is, like and she like, sounds like Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. I was trying and to every establish. other character is not like that, and so she's so no. jar. It, it's like the character got completely different notes to every other character in the scene. Yeah, and so it kind of breaks you out of it. It's like even if you're super religious, no rational human would behave like that in this situation. But and that's I, the thing. I, I was trying it. to. I was trying to examine my own biases, and I was saying like, is this? It, would would this be something that if if I grew up in this neighborhood, uh, a character that I would empathize with and that I would say like, oh, I've come across them, those types of people, and I thought, no, I just don't think so. And I, then I was like, well, is it because like, is it the female performance versus? Because I really liked the two fathers. They I were thought great. They were yeah. great. And so I was like, fuck, is it them? And I thought, no, because well, there were plenty Re- of great strong female performances well, in the Regina film. Regina King and the and Tisha's sister were yeah. fucking brilliant. Yeah, and I don't think that it was the way that religion was reflected because I think the problem is with the way that religion was portrayed, being just this obstinate, um, uh, bigoted perspective. That actually, like, look, I'm, I agree with a lot of those sort of study notes on yeah. on how religion interacts in a lot of these cases, but I feel like the performance was just weak. And the yeah. writing was weak, well, and it, uh, maybe the writing was weak because the performance was just probably doing what the script said, yeah. and it just felt completely unbelievable. So it was like, okay, religion is the bad guy here. We need to get it out of the door, was, and then we can deal with the human was, aspect. Of yes, it. well, because it was completely tonally incongruous with the rest of the film, and that Absolutely. kind of that kind of weird. It felt like it felt so hammy and over the top. That it felt like a critique. And that's why I feel like it was it, it done by out. different people, right? Yeah, because it almost felt like that needed to be put back in the film later. Well, I would yeah. not. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the initial direction of that family gathering was completely different, and then like 
someone fucked around with it and they were like, okay, no, we need to put this in, do this line again, do this, whatever. And yeah, so that yeah. was all added later. That but one after, thing, yeah. so that, that for me, and I, I know that you don't feel the same way, but for <laughs> me, that, that first part of the movie was very rocky. And if you're feeling that way when you're watching it, if you haven't seen it yet, stick with it because it gets, mm. it gets great. It yeah. just needs to get past that first kind of like road bump. And I, I think that one scene was the only part in the first half of the film really annoyed But me. the problem is it cuts back and forth between that scene and a lot of... I, I know that yeah, there's a, there's, not, there's a main a, complication in that particular yeah. scene, but like, and I think I know what you're talking about without going into spoiler territory. Um, the main point of conflict between the two families was also particularly poorly done. But, but just in general, that family gathering moment where like... Even when she is first telling her family, I was like, no, none of this is particularly... Like, it's all very saccharine and it doesn't... Like, her performance isn't great. Regina King is the only really good one here. And, um, and yeah, then it just totally, like, fixes itself in the last half yeah. of the film. I, th- I thought the writing in that family gathering thing overall was a bit dodgy, yeah. But I think the rest of the film, I think, was, was, was really well done on the whole. Yeah. One thing that I guess... Um, I feel kind of underqualified to comment on is that like the main complication and I guess like if Christ, if you could call it an, no, I'm not comfortable calling them an antagonist. Yeah. So she's uh, the, the accuser who's I guess originally from Puerto Rico um, and has lived in America for a while. She is kind of portrayed in the, in, in the story as I would say like weak and cowardly, um, but but empathetically so. It's it's pretty clear in the in the narrative that she's been raped and she just wants it to be over. Yeah, and, and she, she sort just, of almost doesn't care what happens with the justice right, side. Right, and of and it's like why why would I care? Yeah. You know, um, no, I don't think who, she's an antagonist at all. Who's given me reason? No, she almost so that's comes why across I'm as I'm yeah, saying like she, I think I'm not comfortable. Yeah, no. Well, I, I think she almost comes across as like an, an, another victim of the whole kind of society that they're all yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So I guess the way that that I mean that you're. As a viewer, you you're very much in the position at that stage of the film where that's properly uh, engaged with, where you empathise with the family, yeah. and of course she, her her wishes at that point are at odds with the family's wishes, and so she's a very frustrating character in that way. I thought the but scene in Puerto never, Rico was perfect, though. Yeah, the way in which it depicted I, I, that, where I you're felt, like, I felt hopeless. Yeah, you're about like, well, it. fuck. What can you do? And it really right. is just another complication where you're like. Well, they're fucked. Like yeah. this is—you clearly can't solve it by talking to her. You clearly can't solve it like this. They're just fucked. And I, I think that it's—I I think it really—it really carries across the sort of tone that they're trying to convey with that whole right. that whole plot point. One one more thing that I've noticed that I just want to mention quickly that uh, Barry Jenkins does in Beale Street, and also I, I'm pretty sure he did it a fair bit in Moonlight. Yeah, um, it might be a choice by uh, James Lacton, who's a cinematographer as well. Um, is that they do a lot of f- close-ups in kind of very shallow focus on and they people's do a lot, faces. And they do focus pulls and that kind of shit, yeah. Uh, but on people's faces too. Yeah. It gives you a really long time looking at the faces of these people. And like, having studied psych, you... you you that will Im- that will affect yeah. you. Well, Staring I noticed, like, into someone's eyes, looking at their face. There was like a profile shot where like Tish's nose was in focus, but the front of her face close to the camera was out of focus. Like that's how shallow the depth of field. Yeah, was. yeah, yeah. Wild. No, they use really like um, they use that really shallow depth of focus. But when that's front on, it just means that the background is such a an artwork of just a mess of color. There's no discernible objects, and so you're f- you're hyper focused in on this person's face, and it does yeah. it on Tish, and it does it on. 
funny and i think at some point it, it does it on danny as well yeah um and and also the whoever the whatever the woman's name was that was accused um i don't remember she's actually name. kind of a minor character she's anyway. she's barely in it no she's in it for like anyways um it does it on her face too and and, and the the police officer as well um, and so he you, looks fucked. Yeah, and <laughs> that was one thing that I really liked. That they picked a fucked-looking dude. Yeah. So it it just is a, it's an interesting choice that he's made to try and really give you an opportunity to not just get to know these people as pawns in a narrative. Kind of tries to humanize them. Absolutely, yeah. and it's quite an effective way of doing that. I. <laughs> If there was, it's almost like looking at the character before you choose them in a video game, where you get to like yeah. look at them and turn them <laughs> around and think like, do I want to be this person? Yeah. It's like, how, how do I, how do I want to think about this guy? Like, well, what, am, what are I noticing about them? Like, it's very, they're very pockmarked or like they're, I like their eyes yeah, or whatever. Like you said the policeman, even the policeman in his own horrible racist little way, like you get a, you get a good old look at him. I remember like his face several, yeah. so much. It's because he looks like he was mauled by a cat. Yeah, but I, I also but, remember, like, I remember the acne scarring of of the 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 um, rape victim, and I remember, you know, the way that Fonny's eyes had a funny like distancing between them, and yeah, and the tone of Tish's skin, like, it just gets you this. Tish's hair was really cool, right? Every scene, and oh, it yeah. gets you this. Just it's just another level of portraying these characters on screen, and like, it's something that doesn't work in every movie, but the no. way that that that. Jenkins and Laxton managed to do it. it is, is really incredible. So I, I thought yeah, the film was one of my favorite things. Gorgeous. And Just, the more I think about it, the more I'm frustrated as hell that um, Black Panther won the Oscar for best score and not this film. Because this film had one of the best scores I heard from all of last year. I think this might have been one of my favorite films from last year. Was so good. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's cool. The costumes were all amazing. I thought that all the all the fashion was like this mixture of like seventies <laughs> fashion that I'd never seen before. Period films are just like a- any film that takes place other than modern day. They can do whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, but I also I don't I feel like I've never seen one before where I've been like that phone wasn't around then. <laughs> you know, like, when is a bad... I want yeah. to see an example of a bad period well, film I feel like where they're just using shit from like where yeah. everyone's dressed like they're from the 60s. Yeah. There are buildings that were from the 80s. I'm sure that if you go on IMDb, it'll be like, uh, you'll see a Ford yeah. Corvette from 1976. And, um, and those actually, number plates were yeah. registered in 1982. <laughs> and, yeah. Cars and costumes are two things they in any great. period film where I'm just consistently astounded like, where is this warehouse of Perfect Cadillac. You gotta. It's got. You you need to add it to your bucket list to go and be in one of those warehouses because I feel like you're just gonna. I talk about it all the time. Man. It must exist. Every I know car, they do. I think you have to go like, to Hollywood. I have seen thousands of perfect vintage cars <laughs> yeah. in all of these fucking movies. Yeah. Oh, they're gorgeous. You need to but earn like, over a million dollars a year to even look at them. Yeah, <laughs> but you're right in that all the all the costumes. I, I think that I mean they were great, and I loved the fashion yeah. behind them. Like the co- the costuming, as much as they're just normal people's clothes, yeah. well, was great. And there seemed to definitely be a lot of cultural difference in the way in which often depicted in like 70s kind of shit you see a very stark difference in the way in which black Americans dressed to the way in which white Americans dressed and I think that like it's (laughs) it means that like I don't know whether I don't I've never seen all this clothing because of that difference or whether the film is deliberately hyper stylized like Tish looks like she's wearing like high fashion in every scene I think Sorry to Bother You is hyper stylized I think this was 
Yeah, but in some seventies kind of way, like it just. Like, yeah, but I think this was historical. Like I think I mean, there's one thing where she looks like she's wearing the mixture of like a cardigan and a cape. <laughs> like, all right, so yeah, <laughs> are you no, just I making fun of me for being some white Australian the, no, boy? Or what's I think going the seventies are pretty pretty fucked, man. Fashion-wise, yeah. I think it's. I think that probably came from then. But yeah, I mean, we could talk about how gorgeous this film is all night. Yeah, my, th- my favorite bit in the entire movie. Oh yeah, I, I love that. Your favorite bit was the dialogue between between Danny that was my second favorite just that whole um, scene and could easily have been yeah, it. yeah. Uh, but uh, my personal favorite was the perfume store bit oh, I forgot so about she that. says yeah, sure she says like um it's the way that uh, it's basically a, a, a metaphorical scene for the way that different people treat you as a black woman in society um through the lens of working in a perfume store where when you're selling perfume to people the way that they used to do that before you had like tester kits was that they would spray a bottle onto them or you and you would sniff it and you would decide if you wanted so to buy Tish it. So Tish is working at this perfume Tish store. Tish is working at the perfume store, exactly. And she says that the way that people will sample the perfume is very representative of who they are in the society. And they'll say, white women do this, black men do this, black women will do this. And, and but and the, the final one that comes up is a white man. Yeah. And just the predatory way that, it was he, really intimidating. that he uses her body to sample the yeah. perfume is 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 like, so perfect specifically the cinematography and yeah. it, it, the way that it focuses on skin and it shows like yeah the contact that he the just the disgusting contact that he has with her it was a really good scene the way it lingers so great like, specifically to make this account less confusing for people that haven't seen it she's tish says for example tish is working behind the counter she might spray some perfume on her own hand and hold it out to a black lady to sniff um but a white man will grab Tish's hand and bring it up to his own face and sniff. And he expects like, and and it it, it has all these undercurrents as well. Where like, if a black man comes in and he he's looking at buying it as a present, he'll hold out his own hand for you to spray it onto, and he'll and he'll his own smell hand. his own hand. Yeah, and it's like. If they don't, if he doesn't like it, he's made that choice. He's willing to wear that scent anyway, right? Whereas yeah. with like with a black, or with a white man, a he won't have it on him. Yeah. B he wouldn't go through that if he didn't know that he didn't like it, or if he didn't know that he liked it it's already. It's this larger commentary about it's respect so and intercultural. And it's like, really good. You could write an entire essay on that scene. That could have <laughs> been, and I really mean this. That could have been its own short film. Yeah. It was. I think g- genius in it, yeah. in it in that moment, and, it, and um, and I that was it just I was yeah, yeah, it was absolutely great. struck and at ev- that point. Every I feel like there are so many scenes in this film that have this perfect combination of the way in which the cinematography and the writing and the score and everything just comes together to make these beautiful little capsules. Yeah, and especially considering the way it's edited non-linearly and it flat, there's a lot of flashback scenes. A lot of the little memories she has could be their own little stand. Definitely, bits. It, it's so strong. It's I really think great. If we fade into the end of it a little here, we do a yeah. bit of a better than worse than. I think that for all the reasons we've talked about, I really loved Moonlight. I think this is better than Moonlight. I, I enjoy Moonlight a lot better. Yeah, so yeah. Um, uh, official beef station better than worse than is... It's Bill Stricker exactly talk is as good as Moonlight. <laughs> better than Moonlight and worse than Moonlight. I yeah. hope that was... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope yes. that was enlightening for you, yeah. <laughs> listeners. Um, I, I can't think of anything else off as the top of my head. As a super quick note, I really, I really liked how it. Moonlight interacted with um, LGBT issues. So, uh, like, I think mm. for me, it didn't have this didn't have as much of that. In well, it. this did a similar kind of thing with race in a way that um, I Moonlight mean, it, was this, also this film, doing that. Yeah, this film wasn't really so much, I think, about race as it was about culture and about inextricably just, linked. 
Yeah, of exactly. Course, yeah. I, I don't think in in the same way as you could say like Black Klansman is a film about racism. Mm. I think this wasn't a film about racism and inter interracial dynamics as much as it was a film just about black American culture. And obviously that's affected by race and the whole crime part of the movie is affected by like racism. But the film at its heart felt like it was really just like a love letter to this little one culture and this little sort of period in society in this little bubble. I felt like the, the strength was in examining, uh, doing doing that but and appreciating that culture for what it is, but also examining how much it is affected and harmed by yeah. the greater kind of structuralism that it's that it's subjected to. Yeah. And I guess like where Moonlight had the strength in its LGBT analysis, it didn't go into as much of the um, like socio-political issues surrounding yeah. like how, you know, the, like the inequalities in the justice system or whatever. So yeah, they're, they're really good different strengths. I totally agree. It's better than Moonlight and worse than Moonlight. I feel like, I know we're trying to wrap up, I feel like the very ending of this film where it sort of starts to go into what looks like journalist kind of newspaper photos of different crimes and things happening. Yeah. I feel like this that's doing exactly what Black Klansman did better than Black Klansman did it. Because I think that, integrates better with the story and I think it integrates better with the world of the film in a way that doesn't snap you out of it. I think that I think that works a lot better. Yeah, but the point of Black Clansman was to snap you the fuck out of it. I suppose so, so. I suppose they're doing different things. But that's that, yeah. I, I think I, I, when I, I was exactly watching it I noticed like, oh, that's a way of doing that without like drilling down like telling me how to feel. It was it, like Yeah. It, it was a lot more congruous with the tone of the film, but yeah. I, I, I I personally felt like um the way that Black Klansman did it was a much braver choice, and I, the way that it affected me was much greater. Okay, I suppose, so I, I suppose we got a bit of different things out of it then. I, I, yeah. I, I love this film. I sincerely think that if I'd seen this film last year, it would have been towards the top of my list. Right. I loved it so much. Mm. And uh, regardless of my criticisms of it, after the first 45 minutes, uh, like my criticisms, as I said, evaporate, yeah. I think. And I also really like this film. Even if you have to enjoy the, those forty minutes, and you don't, <laughs> and, and uh, but even if you do and you yeah. don't enjoy them, which I think probably most people will enjoy them, yeah. it's absolutely worth seeing. This is a great movie, great, really good. I think that's probably all the time we've got for on yeah. this week's episode of Beef Station then. As always, if you like the show, if you have any thoughts or comments, or if you want to hear our thoughts on a specific film that's coming up, you can email us. That's beefstationpod at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to get a lot of little updates. That's facebook.com slash beefstationpod. Thanks for joining us for another week. I'm Oscar. Andrew. See you later.